welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will, as usual, be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 47. But first, Rich has some retroactive history and a history minute for you. Retroactive history minute. Because it was brought up in the last episode's APO Weird War Tales, I went looking for the World War I Tarzan story mentioned by Joe Orlando. It takes place in 1914 and was a seven-part story spread out over issues 250 to 256, where Tarzan believes Germans killed Jane and seeks revenge. A forgotten front of the war, Allied forces were pretty quick in occupying German territories in the continent. But German General Paul Emil von Litau Vorbeck, popularly known as the Lion of Africa, was commanding the German East Africa campaign. With a force of about 14,000, 3,000 Germans and 11,000 Africans, he held in check a much larger force of 300,000 British, Indian, Belgian, and Portuguese troops, tying down forces that would have been used elsewhere, like the Western Front, until surrendering upon hearing of the armistice in November of 1918. Litau Vorbeck was the only German commander to successfully invade a part of the British Empire during the First World War. His exploits in the campaign have been described as the greatest single guerrilla operation in history and the most successful. Yeah, someone needs to make a movie. An Intel report on the Tarzan story is no doubt in the future. I have The Great War in Africa by Byron Farwell on my shelf awaiting my time. Also, as we referred in last episode's Intel report about grunts, Common Foe was the other Keith Giffen work we were talking about that had a boatload of de- delays in completing. Shannon, Eric, Denton worked with Giffen on the script of both stories. Speaking of Intel report, this one is overdue for all you GI robot fans out there. Atomic Robo. Script by Brian Clevenger's art by Scott Wegener. Published by Red Fire Comics beginning in October of 2007. 1923, Nikolai Tesla's career is in its twilight until he unveils a nuclear-powered robot with genius intelligence. Atomic Robo. After decades of dealing with all manner of weirdness, Atomic Robo and the so-called action scientists of Tesladyne become the go-to defense force against the unexplained. See Robo take on Nazis, giant ants, clockwork mummies, walking pyramids, Mars, cyborgs, vampires, super-intelligent dinosaurs, Max likes that, and his nemeses, Baron von Helsingard and Thomas Edison. There have been 12 miniseries of this title. What? 13? God damn it. <laughs> and a couple of spin-off minis called Real Science Adventures that mostly feature his support crew. I got Wegener to sign issues 1, 4, and 6 of the first mini at SumCon. Volume 2, Dogs of War, is a World War II story arc. IDW picked up where Red 5 left off in 2015. Two of the minis, Volume 1 and 6, were nominated for Eisner Awards for Best Limited Series. I think these are web comics now. Lots of snark and sarcasm in the script. These are an absolute blast. A special mission is a must. I just got a bunch of covers of the Grand Comics database for these. 
Yeah, got to agree on Atomic Robo. And, and Rich, of course, is the person who introduced me to the series. And as he indicated, Dr. Dinosaur, one of the greatest characters in any comic book series of all time. Just take my word for it. Or don't. Go and, go and read Atomic Robo. It's freaking awesome. So while you guys go out and find Atomic Robo issues to read and think about everything Rich just told you, including that awesome retroactive history minute, We'll let you simmer in a podcast promo for another great show. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the issue of Weird War Tales at hand. Yes, we will. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories, formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back. So, as I mentioned before the break, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 47 this time around. And Rich, as usual, is here to hit you with that cover detail. Art by Joe Kubert. 30 cents. The blue Weird War Tales rests on a black top half of the cover under the yellow Line of DC Superstars banner. There's only the one skeletal head on the left half with chewing the bloodbath of the toy soldiers on the right half. Two young boys, a blue-eyed blonde and an African-American, are excitedly looking at five large toy soldiers on a table. The toys are equipped with swords, spears, and shields the leader is wearing a hugely horned helmet and wearing a purple fur cape. Behind the boys are five soldiers with skeletal faces wearing the same uniforms and gear as the toys on the table. The leading soldier's arms are spread wide as if he's about to grab the boys. Above everything, on a red banner in red, white, and blue lettering reads, DC Comics salutes the Bicentennial. Date of release, July, August, 1976. Of course. Date of release, April 13th, 1977. No Killjoy that I can see. Comments and commendations. Joe's art is great, but man, I don't know. There's just something about this cover that bothers me. I can't put my finger on. I don't like it, and I don't know why. The kids are both wearing dark overshirts that make them disappear too easily into the black background. (laughs) (laughs) the outermost soldiers look crowded in on the edges of the cover i don't feel any particular sense of dread for the kids either kind of look like eh. i don't know maybe i am figuring out why i don't like it 
I know it's pretty unusual for me to generally like the art, but, di- but dislike the overall finished product. But hey, somehow we've accomplished it here. Yeah, I will say uh, before I get into my scripted comments that I do agree that Joe's work on the last couple of covers has been a bit more zoomed in than we're used to seeing, like very tight shots with very large figures. But overall, I got to disagree. I I think the dark shirts help the kids' faces and arms pop better in the composition. Like brighter shirts would add too much static between them and the skeletal host behind them. As for the... The crowded composition itself, as I admit, I think it still works, at least for the theme I immediately picked up on or imagined, that that theme being war toys training the youth to become the cannon fodder of wars to come. Insidious, but true, I think so. And so do pretty much all child psychologists out there. Get them while they're young. There's a real horror story for you, eh? I kind of like this one. All told. Okay. First up, as mentioned on the cover, Bloodbath of the Toy Soldiers. Nine pages, script by George Kashtan, art by Ruben Yandok. Cover story, obviously. In the future atomic wasteland that was once planet Earth, a young boy named Zeron waves a sword and commands his army of toy soldiers to follow him to victory. His father is General Arax, who is dismayed that Zeron talks to his toys as if they are alive. When are you going to stop playing soldier and behave like the man I'm trying to raise you to be? At that moment, two of Arax's aides run into the room to deliver an intelligence report on the enemy's positions. But before they can divulge the information, they happen to glance at the formation that Zeron's toy soldiers are in and are amazed. The boy had exactly duplicated the enemy strategy descriptive in the intel report. As the two soldiers watched, Zeron deployed the opposing soldiers in a way that practically gave them their own battle plan. General Arax thought the men were nuts and his son was a half-wit. They had a battle to fight. Based on the intelligence report, Arax's army routes the best battalion in the enemy's army and sends them scurrying like scared rabbits. Battle won, Arax and his two aides returned to headquarters. It was unbelievable. Zeron's mock battle had ended the exact same way it had ended on the battlefield. Curiosity aroused, Arax asks Zeron how he dreams up his games with his toy soldiers. Zeron doesn't know. I just make believe I'm you, leading our troops. It was uncanny. He had acquired some strange power to foresee, perhaps even influence, the outcome of a battle. And he wasn't even aware of it. Arax begins to laugh as he realizes his good fortune. All we have to do is follow the strategies he lays out for us and we can't possibly lose. Ever again! But as he walks off, his aides are crestfallen. All of our hopes down the drain. Nothing can stop him from extending his dictatorship across the whole land. But they realize the power of the toy soldiers can work both ways. Going back inside, they see Zeron has started a new game. It'll be my biggest victory yet! That night, the scouts returned to analyze Zeron's strategy. He had duplicated tomorrow's plan. <laughs> that wouldn't do. Grabbing the toy soldiers, the two men rearranged Zeron's formations to place Arax's army in a weakened position. The lead reproductions were so realistic they almost felt alive. In the morning, Arax analyzed Zeron's soldiers. That's a little unorthodox, not the way I do battle. Still, I suppose we've got to follow it to the letter. The dictator's forces walk right into a trap. 
sitting ducks, Harax had to order a retreat. Afterwards, Zerlan confessed to his furious father he didn't know why he'd been defeated that day. I did everything you would do, but it was like the enemy set a trap for me. Zeron turned to resume play with his toys. Well, what's the difference? Like you said, it's only a game, Dad. Next time around, I'll... Eric snapped and sent Zeron's toys flying off the table with a sweep of his arm. There'll be no next time! I'm sending an orderly to gather up these soldiers and lock them away. It's time you grew up, little man, and started behaving like a real soldier. As Arax stormed out, tears flowed down Zeron's cheeks as he clutched the figure of his army's general. Poor dad. He was really upset by his defeat today, but he'll make a comeback. He's still the greatest general in the world. That night, Arax paces the corridors with his aides, trying to decide on his next course of action. Passing a door, he hears Zeron play acting inside and throws it open. The boy is commanding his general figurine, and Arax seizes it. Didn't I order you? Never again! Zeron bursts into tears. Please, Dad, let me keep just that one. It's my favorite, the greatest one in my collection. Really? Then so much for your greatest soldier. He throws the figure into a fireplace and immediately begins to scream. Before the shocked eyes of his aides, Arax begins to melt, just like the toy replica of himself in the fire. There's nothing to be done as the general dies. Well, what do you do? Without my dad to lead you, Zeron sobs. He, he was the greatest general of all. The aides lead the boy away from his father's smoking remains. Yes, Zeron, but there will be others. Who knows? Perhaps you, one day, will be leading us in a world that's happy again. The No Killjoy? Comments and combinations. It's a bit of a callback to Cyrano's army from Weird War Tales 10 with a slight whiff of previous voodoo stories. You can tell pretty early on that Cyrano has some developmental issues, and a hard charger like the general raising him alone in a post-apocalyptic war would obviously have some issues with him. If Mom were still around, Eric would have no time for him at all. When are you going to stop playing soldier behaving like the man I'm trying to raise you to be? Page 2, panel 2. Calling Zeron a half-wit on page 3, panel 1 instantly solidifies the disdain we should all be feeling towards the general. He only starts listening to Zeron once it's militarily advantageous to do so, page 5, panel 1. Vindictively destroying the one thing that gives Zeron joy was just cruel, page 8, panel 5. You know what? Screw this guy. Uh, two callouts, the page 1 splash of the ruined city visible through the wall, through the hole in the wall as Zeron commands his troops is amazing. And page three, panel three of Erax and Battle reminds me of the great Jerry Talayak. All right. And for my CNC, I got to ask, this is how to lead off a bicentennial issue? Couldn't have put this one out on Father's Day, maybe? That said, the story's not bad here. And it was nice to see this jerk get his just desserts. So mission accomplished. Weird War Tales-wise, seeing dear old dad melting on page nine reminded me of the cover to DC's Adventure Comics number 431, with the specter straight up melting a bad guy's arms in full view. Hey kids, comics! And I liked how Arax's own soldiers hated him too. That was a nice touch and a cool little twist in the story I didn't see coming. The art was mostly great throughout, with, as Rich mentioned, a kick-ass splash panel, 
the half splash page of combat that Rich mentioned on page three had great sound effects as well. And you know, that makes me happy. Use sound effects. It's a comic book. And that page is great for that. Dad's tantrum on page seven, panel three is really well drawn. And really most everything else in the story is drawn incredibly well, except you guessed it, it's me, the host. The host drawings, in my opinion, were not that great. And that end panel was like an afterthought, like an insult, really. Still, I got to say, good opening story. So what lies beyond that opening story? How are we going to follow that up? Well, we're going to follow it up with a little two-pager called The Day After Doomsday. Yes, it's back, people, and it ain't going away, as far as I can tell. Script for this one is by our buddy Steve Skeets, pencils by Paul Kirchner, and inks by Tex Blaisdell, who just has a fun name to say. I like saying Tex Blaisdell. That's fun. Let's see if the story's fun. Synopsis goes like this. The last man on Earth stumbles through the flaming ruins of a city. He had never felt so alone. He was far from helpless, still surviving in this destroyed, dismal world. But what good is survival when one is alone? He hesitates when he thinks he hears a woman's voice pleading for help. He runs toward the sound and discovers it coming from under a pile of rubble. Crying out to her that help is on the way, he tears his hands to pieces, frantically digging through the wreckage as the voice continues to call out. He is utterly dismayed to eventually discover the voice is coming from a tape recorder. It was from a radio program. And the shifting rubble must have pressed the play button. No, no, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. The man goes crazy, grabbing a broken piece of wood and violently smashing the recorder to pieces. But the man's pounding and ranting is enough to loosen the delicately balancing side of a bombed out nearby building. He barely has time to recognize the danger before being crushed under the weight of the falling bricks. And all is silence once more. We don't got a killjoy here, so I'll lead us into the CNC and I'll say, right away, I like the effort put into the opening panel. You've got the fallen statue of Mercury, the Roman god, you know, with the, uh, the caduceus, the staff with the snakes twining around it and everything. The credits on the rim of the once super fancy timepiece, the big clock in front of him, and the flaming wreckage behind it all. It's just really cool looking. The logo is decent, and the host drawing is, well, crappy. Ah, well, moving on. It's a short one, and the art is pretty stiff compared to what we just saw, but it tells the story well enough. I actually liked the sequence on page two where the recording begs not to have its innards spilled within the drama of the radio show that was recorded onto the tape. And then the survivor actually does that to the machine, smashing it and it's, you know, spilling its innards of tape all over the place. So I like that touch. And then the survivor's innards are likely squeezed out by a pile of building materials soon after. So I like that. Maybe even unintentional, but dramatic symmetry there was, was really cool. And something about that relatively quiet panel is just hilarious to me with the sound effect, kaflam, and just the smoke rising from the pile of rocks. For me, this was a really entertaining little interlude. 
day after doomsday still maintaining its value in these pages not a huge fan of the art but i like the story itself would we react any differently in his place page two panel four the following bricks is my art call out for this quick little tale of misfortune Yep, once again, Day After Doomsday has has redeemed itself and beyond. I hope it can keep it up because it's been fun watching this feature that I used to despise becoming one of my favorite parts of the book. So given that that was a short one and, uh, and all that, I'm going to take the final story in the issue as well. It's called The Warrior, you know, shooting at the walls of heartache and all that. It's six pages long. It is scripted by our good buddy, Jack Olek, and art is by a previous favorite of the show, Ricardo Viamonte. Synopsis for The Warrior, despite my urge to just read the lyrics to that song, goes a little something like this. As the Viking clan watches, Godfred and Holgar wage a mighty battle with sword and shield. Holgar is an old man, and Godfred has no mercy in his heart. Prince Eric begs his father, King Atar, to stop the fight. Holgar was once a great warrior, and old men are of no use to the clan. But the king agrees and orders Godfred to spare Holgar anyway. Eric is going on his first raid tomorrow, and the king reminds him that Vikings deal in death. Pray when we meet the English, no mercy holds back your blade. A week at sea in his father's longship passes, and then Eric tastes battle for the first time. English reinforcements arrive, and the king orders Eric to take some men and force them back. But something inside the young prince snaps. He flees to the shore, and the king is disgusted. So that is my son who begs for mercy for another. Small wonder, he has a coward's heart. Another warrior commands the men Eric feared too much to lead to victory. Loot is gathered and the Vikings sail for home. But Eric is an outcast, friendless as a mongrel cur. He is not welcome at the victory feast. Old Holgar approaches the young prince. The shame lies not in fear, but in overcoming it. But how does one conquer fear? In shame I live, and in shame I will die. Holgar hands Eric his shield. Look well upon this shield. It will help you. It is the shield of Thor himself. Old man, you mock me. How could you own a shield that belongs to the god of war? That I cannot tell you. But this I know. Use it in battle and its magic will protect you as it did me. I swear. Eric takes the shield and immediately feels its power. He storms into the victory feast and demands to be allowed to go on the next raid. King scoffs. Get out. You are no more my son. Godfrey joins in. Nor are you a man. Take yourself out to the kitchens, woman. There you will be safe. Like a flash of lightning, Eric hurls his axe at Godfrey. It is a challenge that cannot be ignored. The two Vikings engage with sword and shield until Eric emerges victorious. The prince spares Godfred's life as proof he is a warrior. The king agrees. Eric has earned a second chance on the next raid. Hopefully, he will also get a chance to become the king's son again. Eric is in the thick of the fighting, 
and falls mortally wounded when he is run through by a thrown sword. Dying in his father's arms, Eric asked the king to tell Holgar how he had died. Tell him that I thank him. Eric is given a Viking funeral, and afterwards, the king keeps his word and passes the message. What does it mean? That must remain between young Eric and myself, Holgar replies. As the king walks off, Holgar returns to his forge. The shield he works on is an exact mate to the one he had bestowed upon Eric. One of many. Hammer strikes Anvil as he works. Rest well, Eric. No man will ever guess from whence you drew your courage. Perhaps some other young warrior will one day require my help. Old men have their uses after all. The end. Killjoy. I almost missed this one, but I'm sure Max would have had my back. Thor is not the god of war, but the god of hammers. I mean, thunder. Tyr is one of the Norse gods of war, along with Odin and Freya. I think I can forgive Olek on this one, though. And I'm gonna jump in on that. I, I will say that people often confuse Thor. I looked. I looked into this with the god of war because he was often invoked in times of war because he was the strongest of the Norse gods. And other people of note, I think Henry Wadsworth Longfellow also got it wrong in poems and called Thor the god of war over the centuries in between. So it's a common mistake. But of course, you did your research, and you, sir, are technically correct about who is the real god of war. <laughs> Comments and commendations. You know, I remember liking Diamante's art a lot better in issue 34's To His Rescue Came a Maiden, where he did pencils and inks, as he did here. And issue 42's Old Soldiers Never Die, where he only did the inks. This looked like something got rammed out in half an hour for some Sunday funny strip. The detail, for the most part, is never there. Largely empty, monochrome backgrounds didn't help either. The story itself was pretty good, however. The classic trick of distracting the hero of the R with a placebo so we can do what needs to be done. Two call-outs, page two, panel three, of the battle between the Vikings and Englishmen, and surprisingly, page three, panel one, the minimalist silhouettes in the sunset of another battle panel actually works for me here. And hey, for a Viking tale, there's nary a horned helmet to be seen. I've griped about that a lot. Yeah, indeed. It, that, that was something to see, but probably uh, was just faster to him for him to draw helmets with no horns. But we'll get into that again here. I'll say, in its defense, we open with a pretty great splash page with a cool background effect of a, of a ghostly face, you know, hovering behind the scene. A decent enough logo and... A completely crappy host. I think this is the worst hosted issue of the series since they started with the floating hosts. Ever. I'm pretty sure. The story here was decent enough, as Rich said. I agree. Except I gotta wonder how old Holgar is making all those shields and no one knows about it. They got that much raw material laying around. And how many dumb slash perfectly reasonable, in my opinion, kids... Has he sent off to their deaths with these things? He's got to have a worse record with kids than Batman at this point. What if he just keeps on sacrificing the kinder? He can avoid those showdowns like the one he started the story in? I mean, Godfrey was right. Holgar kind of sucks. <laughs> now, to the art polls. 
Page two, panels four through six, we got a nice triptych carrying the action across one piece of scenery, which is a good storytelling trick and uh, shows some of Viamonte's real chops. I gotta say, I actually really disliked the minimalist silhouettes Rich mentioned as they were simple to the point of being cave paintings and just added to the rush job feel of the art in general for me. I mean, all of page four and page six are lazy as hell, but at least page five, panel five, gives us an example of some better silhouette style work. And again, shows a nice scene that Viamonte is perfectly capable of drawing. Overall, this is the stinker of the issue and kind of a stinker in general. So with all the stories out of the way, which was kind of a mixed bag this time around, we'll move on to possibly brighter pastures at the letters page section of the comic known as the APO Weird War Tales. And Rich will kick it off for you. Our Joe Kubert art header is back. And so are three repetitive letter writers, Linus Sabalas, John Elliott, and Mark Schmieder. I will go with Linus Sabalas from Laval, Quebec, Canada. Dear Joe, there isn't much to complain about in WWT 44. The artwork in all three stories was handled splendidly, except for Fear No Evil, in which Garcia Lopez's facial drawings could have used improvement. The stories, without a doubt, were terrific. Jack Olick, who happens to be my favorite WWT writer, hit a double bullseye with Photo Finish and Fear No Evil. I was sad to see the end came for your con continuity experiment. The year 700 after the bomb. A brilliant piece of work, despite the repetitious summaries at the beginnings of chapters two and three. Agreed. The ending disappointed me, though. I thought you could have come up with something better, like the security chief holding on to Barry and disappearing along with him. It is said that variety is the spice of life. Well, if you apply this to WWT by giving it a broader range of ideas while making sure that any two stories in every issue are not about the same war, there would be a definite improvement. This action would, in my opinion, trigger an expansion of the present audience. As you mentioned, a pickup of sales could bring WWT back to a monthly basis. Now that you, the other WWT fans, and myself would like to see. And Joe responds with, we try to get as much diversity as possible into every issue, but the need to fill a certain quota of World War II type action occasionally locks us into a less than perfect combination of stories. Or maybe it's more than perfect. If more readers want to read about World War II, let us know. And yeah, this this episode actually is, is like that. I mean, the uh, there's no World War II stories in this. I mean, you got you know two post-apocalypse stories and a, and a story set in the Viking era. And yeah, I mean, me and Max have talked about this too. I and mean, we both really ended up loving you know the year 700 after the bomb. Maybe they'll come back and do another you know story multi-issue story arc at some point. Don't know about that yet. Yeah, I mean, I liked Photo Finish. I mean, I thought that was a pretty cool story. I think I did. I remember doing quite a lengthy history minute on that. So I kind of got to disagree with, um, you know, some of what Lannis Voss is talking about here, but on all song letter. Yep, agreed. And I'm going to go with, since there's only three, <laughs> three stalwart letter writers here to choose from, you'll see why I'm picking Mr. Schmieder as my letter of choice. He starts out and says, Dear Joe, welcome to another loser issue of Weird War Tales. Photo finish was the typical Oleg story with poor Chua art. 
using an even older twist. Olek came up with Fear No Evil, but at least this one had good Lopez art. Rounding off the issue was the conclusion, if one could call it that, to the doomsday yarn. The ending was very clever, but what was the point of the story? Maybe I would have liked it if you had printed the whole story at once. The only good thing I can say about this issue is that it had a good Kubert cover. Mark Schmieder conquered Massachusetts. And Joe responds, again, much more nicely than I would have, as he always does. He says, we'll trust you'll find more to enjoy in this issue than our current Kubert cover. But you'll notice if you compare your comments with Linus's that you two are in direct opposition. Is it any wonder that we can't figure out exactly what our readers want to see? So yeah, that was a nice case of two of these regular writers you know, writing in and completely disagreeing one after the other on the fundamental nature of an issue of the series. So I just thought that was cool. And, and another cool thing is there's a little editor's note at the bottom of the letters page. And it says, we've run out of room for letters. So here's a quick plug for the 200th anniversary issue of Star Spangled War Stories, featuring the unknown soldier and Mademoiselle Marie in a David Michelinie, Jerry Talayoc tale and a special new Enemy Ace mini epic by Joe Kubert, still on sale if you're lucky. Now I gotta imagine that at least rings a couple of bells with Rich, but I figured it was worth asking. So, hey, you remember this issue at all, Rich? Nope. <laughs> as, as stated previously, I have like five long boxes of DC war books downstairs. I cannot remember every single freaking story. I mean, um, you know, just doing, you know, these these weird war tale stories and as, as I'm reading them for the scripts and stuff like that. I remember so 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 few of these from when i read them the first time so that's that's the cool part about doing this this show is it reintroduces me to some of these books that i haven't read in literal decades they just sit in a box downstairs collecting dust <laughs> yeah fair enough fair enough and but i gotta say when i was reading that part of the letters page i was like that sounds like one of those issues where you know, your friends sit around and try to create the greatest rock band ever. Like, who would play bass? Who would be the singer? I'm like, this issue sounds freaking amazing. <laughs> so worth looking into anyway. Uh, just one of the, well, that's one of the things that gets forgotten a lot about is, and I, I don't remember what the backstory was, but Mademoiselle Marie hated the Unknown Soldier. She wanted to kill him. And I don't remember why. <laughs> so there is some very definite, um, you know, backstory drama with those two. So anytime that those two are working together, it must have had to have been a big freaking deal. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It just sounds like a great issue to dig up and check out. So hopefully, um, hopefully we'll remember to do that the next time I visit. We'll see. So since I gave Rich a hard time, uh, I'm going to let him lead off the next part of the show, which takes us into our spotlighted ads of the issue. Bit of a struggle finding a good one this time out. But the selection this time out was literally the last place it could be on the back cover. Spalding, your game is specialized. No, your glove is too. If you catch or play first, you need a specialized glove to do the job right. Everybody knows that. What if you pitch? 
What if you play the infield or the outfield? Fact is, you need a glove designed specifically for each position on the field. You need your glove. And only Spalding makes it. Pitcher, fooling hitters is your business. You need a solid web so they won't know what's coming. And exercise to protect yourself when they guess right. Outfield, you need a gigantic glove to reach every ball in the park and occasionally one that's on its way out of it. The extra flexible H-Web helps you line up the ball in the air and hang on to it when it comes down, no matter how hard you come down. Infield, your glove has to be quick as you are. It's a wide glove with squared off fingers so you can get more of it down in front of you the ball. It has a shallow pocket so you can find the handle unloaded in a hurry from any base at any angle. There's, there's a photo of five mitts on the bottom of the page and four drawings by Mad Magazine great Jack Davis of position players doing their thing. My glove from back in the day that I still have was a Louisville Slugger, however. I tried out for the baseball team in school and, not surprisingly at all, was in the first round of cuts. I don't watch a lot of baseball on TV, but I check the standings uh, regularly. Cooperstown is pretty close. I don't like going to a the odd game here and there if the opportunity presents itself. Good ad. Cincinnati Reds. Big Red Machine. World Series champions, 1976. <sighs> All right. I should say I was on Little League two years in a row. Uh, first year on the California Angels up in Lake Luzerne, New York. We lost every game. Every single game that we played in. Second year. My same team, same kids. We won every single game. And then all of us but our pitcher quit playing Little League after that. We were like, there, trophy, done, out. So for my spotlighted ad, I'll say it's the Bicentennial. Have a belt buckle. Just mangle at least 25 comics. We got a full page ad here. It says, DC salutes the Bicentennial with a great free offer and all that copy. And as it's, it's in as much combination of red, white, and blue as they could manage. And then the ad goes on to say, look for July and August covers, which have the red, white, and blue headings and are identified by a right corner number one through 33. So right, we're getting right down to the weeds, getting all complicated with this Bicentennial offer here. It says, if you send us at least 25 different cover headings, we will send you free a metal Superman belt buckle, an antique silver finish. There's a picture of the thing, and it looks pretty bad. <laughs> Doesn't look like anything you'd want, but all right. Then there's a checklist down the left column of the ad with all these, all these issues numbered 1 through 33, as they mentioned. And our, uh, our Weird War Tales comes in at number 14 here. Weird War Tales number 47. It says, only these issues will be accepted. So, you know, they're very picky about which issues you're going to be mangling to get this crappy belt buckle. They want you to cut off and send in the top of the cover of the magazine. And then they got Superman himself in very Kurt Swan or Kurt Schaffenberger looking art saying, collect them, save them, and then send them. Be the first on your block to collect the 25 headings. And, you know, send them to Rockefeller Plaza, blah, blah, blah. I'm enclosing these covers. Print clearly, you dumb kids, it says. All mail, blah, blah, blah. You know, July, all mail must be postmarked by July 4th, 1976. As if they weren't trying to tie this in hard enough to the bicentennial. You even have to have a postmark that comes in on or before July 4th. 
So just a weird, the whole thing, this whole issue is a weird bicentennial tribute because it isn't one to begin with, except for the cover. And then what you're going to get for your bicentennial prize is a metal Superman belt buckle. It's just odd, and I love it. So there we go. That's, that's the kind of ad that I like to see people, just completely strange. So with all that out of the way, we will move on to a section I will not forget about this time <laughs> called Got Any Last Words? And actually, the trick of it is I just did the math when you're talking about it. It's not free. You had to spend seven and a half bucks in all those comic books to get this piece of crap up. <laughs> so don't even lie to me, you bastards. <laughs> so anyway, the official bicentennial issue doesn't have a Revolutionary War story in it. What the hell? Worse, I feel like this issue took the series itself a step backwards. Nothing in it lunged down to me at all from the very beginning to the very end. Gotta pick a winner, so I'll go with the cover story. Far, far from the worst issue we've ever covered, but I'd still put this one in the bottom half of the world of the Weird War Tales stack. Yeah, I gotta agree. Even if I think I like this one a tiny bit more, maybe that, that may just be the energy coming off that ad boosting my enthusiasm. It's still a much more run-of-the-mill installment than anything I'd grab right away to introduce someone to the series, for sure. The theme that I imagined being expounded upon when I saw the cover turned out to only exist in my head. And even though I agree it's the best story in the issue, the actual message delivered by the cover was that some dads are just real a-holes. Yeah, I know. So, all right. <laughs> not a waste of time, but not a shining star either. And note, Day After Doomsday is almost tied for first for me here. Really, just the somewhat stiffer art held it back for first prize. I'm docking a full point on this issue for the crappy hosting, though. I mean, really. Come on, you were doing so well for a while. And then, and then you give me all this garbage. So I'm, I'll shut up about that, and we'll move on to our dead letter office, our social part of the show, where we take a look at people stopping by on social media. We read some emails from, from listeners, stuff like that. You know, friendly part of the show. This is where I'll mention that you can find us on Facebook, the Weird Warriors podcast page that Rich runs and does an amazing job on. And, and just like really people, if you if you miss us in between episodes, stop by on the Facebook page. And it's like we never left. You know, it's an amusement park over there. Uh, I'm over on Blue Sky now as Max Apocalypse. If you all are on there, you can find me. And I do promote the show over there to the extent that I ever do. And the other thing I could mention is that we have something you may have heard of, a store on redbubble.com. You can look for the Weird Warriors podcast on Redbubble. You can put our awesome logo drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business on anything you can imagine. And if you send in a picture of that stuff right now, you could earn a prize. Yes, an amazing prize, a star from the very flag that once flew over Sam Glansman's home. So, hey, get on Redbubble, order some merch, all right? That's all I'm going to say. You shouldn't need any more inspiration than that. So, this Dead Letter Office is brought to you by episode 51 of the show, where we covered Weird War Tales number 41. And over on social media, people stopped by to say hi, and those people were Tim DeForest, 
Martin Gray, David Steele, the Magazines and Monsters podcast, Mike Sturba, Chuck Bushman, the Checkered Pass podcast, Bill Mooney, Luke Giaconetti, and over on my just mentioned new Blue Sky account, we got visits from Vincent Loves Comics. That's V-I-N-S-O-N. Awesome person to follow no matter where you find him for comic stuff. And our good buddy Kirk, Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army is now also over on the Blue Skies. He stopped by. Craig McD, that's Craig M-A-C-D, stopped by as well. So nice to see everybody. And also nice to hear from people as well, because we got a bunch of email this time around. And I'm going to let Rich read the first one, coming from one of our buddies I just mentioned. Tim DeForest, longtime fan of the show. Another great history minute from Rich. Like the one on big railroad guns in the last episode, it was clear, well-organized, and very informative. Yeah, you're just, you know, dislocated. Just pat me on the back, man. Just pat me on the back. It's become one of my favorite parts of the podcast. Does that make Rich the fancy of the show? Overshadowing Max Richie Cunningham? <laughs> one thing I've never been is cool, man. <laughs> I don't agree that the story had any overt Southern sympathy vibes. Corruption has always existed among all armed forces and concentrating on the corrupt Northerners was appropriate for the story. If there was a story about corruption or incompetence in an allied unit during World War II that didn't focus on the cause of the war, it wouldn't be pro-Nazi if the Nazis won a battle because of that corruption. It would simply be concentrating on a specific element of the war. I feel this story did the same. But the most important reason I'm writing is about Sam Glansman's art. Would Sue be open to donating it to the Special Collections Library at the Ringling College of Art and Design? It would be carefully preserved and used to teach inspire artists. We have several big fans of his art who teach here, including George Pratt, who wrote, who wrote Drew, Enemy Ace War Idol. So our teachers would jump at the chance to show it to their students. I need to point out that I run the circulation department, so final decisions about donations aren't mine to make. I have yet to run this idea past our library director. If Sue is interested, there might be a few months before a decision is made that we will take it. Sorry about that. Bureaucracy is eternal. And so if she is interested, but finds a good home in the meantime, she should not feel any obligation towards us and just go with the quicker offer. If she is interested, I'll move the idea up the ladder here and advocate for it. Let me know. If it's not a good idea at your end, feel free to say no. I promise I won't cry. Too much. And hey, that's that's a fantastic offer. I mean, I, I haven't had a chance to uh, reach out to Sue lately, um, ever since I've given her all the information about that museum out in Columbus, Ohio. I've been on the road a lot this month, last month and a half. But yes, uh, thanks, Tim. I will reach out to Sue and punt this past her and see what she says and see if she has any updates with the um, museum out in Columbus. Also, we'll let you all know. Right on. And so even though, even though Tim praised Rich and disagreed with me, <laughs> I figured the rest of the the rest of the email was so cool that I had to I had to let it slide into the show. And I, I did I did respond to Tim and I said, you know, if Rich is going to be your Fonzie, I said, I got to warn you, instead of the catchphrase, a Rich's catchphrase is more like uh, reciting the entirety of at least two Looney Tunes shorts during one conversation. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. 
Also, I just add, I have Monty Python. <laughs> Python or yeah, but the Looney Tunes, man, you, you better get ready. <laughs> All right. So like, I also, you know, I just want to know, I have never been as cool as even Richie Cunningham. So thanks for the compliment. All right. So, um, I will, however, I'll take this next email, which I, I decided to do on purpose. Uh, this is kind of like the issue itself, because we have frequent email writers that disagree with each other. And, and there's a certain vibe of that going on here, completely by accident, but cool. We got Mike Stewart of the Save for Half podcast writing in, and he says, Hey, Max and Rich, just enjoyed listening to F51 of the podcast and had to comment on the story about the ghostly draftees. I must agree with Max's irritation about the pro-reb slant of the 70s DC bullpen in general, and this story in particular. Nice to note the commutation fee of the North without mentioning the same in the CSA with the, if you own 20 slaves, you're accepted rule. Whatever, I could go on. But what really stuck in my metaphorical craw was the statement that the Rebs outnumbered them 10 to 1 when the cartoon expletive lettering, hell did the CSA outnumber Union troops in any battle you'd care to name, especially since the reference to Grant in 1864 meant that had to be the Army of the Potomac? Ah! Okay, historian rant over for now. Honest. Keep up the good work, Mike in Texas. And I did respond to Mike and say, if you're apologizing for a rant about history, it, this is really not the place you have to apologize for that. <laughs> so that's, again, that's Mike from the Save for Half role-playing game podcast, which is awesome. And if you have any interest in that kind of stuff at all, you should already be listening to. And also, you know, Mike agreed with me, so I gave him a plug. And I forgot to give Tim a plug. Tim does the comicsradioblogspot.com blog about old comics and especially old time radio. And it's freaking awesome. You know, I'm giving him a hard time for disagreeing with me, but really most sane people do that most of the time. So our final Gmail comes from our good buddy, Jason Zeller, the founder and not sole owner anymore of the Jason Zeller binge listener. And Jason says, I'm glad they brought back the feature length tale in this one. The cover was pretty good, though I was surprised they brought back the World War II heads at the top of the comic. Me too. <laughs> the Dead Draftees of Regiment 6 was a good story overall. The Oat, that, that, the Oat, yeah, great. The art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was amazing, indeed. Thank you guys for pointing out his importance in DC Comics history. I appreciate them trying to tie a supernatural story into an historical event. I felt for all these men who had been swindled or forced into the war, and they definitely did a good job of creating some bad guys who were deserving of the fates they received. However, the riots and wanton destruction and the deaths of innocents, like the innocent African-American and Tom's sister, were hard to look at. Yeah, yeah, they were. In this case, the ghostly vengeance went way beyond justified retribution and caused the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction. And yeah, like in the history minute that Rich laid out in that episode. We didn't need ghosts to go way beyond. We, the human nature did that just fine. So Jason goes on to say, thanks, Max, for mentioning the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table house ad. That also caught my eye, and I wondered why I'd never heard of it, as it sounds right up my alley, too. But alas, it's another comic I wish they had produced, 
but they had not. I bet with that creative team, it would have been amazing. The Shazam Minerva Menace ad, the story in that ad was surprisingly very topical. Yeah. Yeah, seek that out. It, it, it's kind of timeless. It was very relevant to today and the bombardment of messages through social media. Take care, guys, Jason. And I got to say, people, I paid attention. We got a new podcast review. We got a new review on Apple Podcasts, five stars, entitled Keep Them Coming from K Nombre Usoyo, all one word, who says, I just like the podcast and that's that. And that's the kind of review I like. It's right to the point, you know? And I even think I might know who left that review, but I'm going to leave it a mystery until they decide to identify themselves. But I do think I know who K Nombre Usoyo, which I think translates to what name should I use? I know, I, I think I might know who it is, but five stars, I don't care. I'll take it. <laughs> like again, nice, concise uh, review, much more concise than, than my summary of it. So I'll shut up at long last and let Rich give you something you actually want, which is the teaser for the next episode. <sighs> I know there's no place like home for the holidays, but guess what? You're being redeployed. I'll decide what you're here for, damn it. Time to put a bow on that four-issue WWT miniseries from 1997. The grumpy ghost of grandpa. Barking squirrels. Those darn kids. Spoiler alert. We're entering another interesting six-episode run of your favorite comic book podcast. So you better keep showing up if you don't want to miss out. Oh, man, I got to keep showing up? Fine. I guess so. And you know what I'm showing up for, people? I'm showing up for what you just listened to. This was the Weird Warriors podcast. Rich and I, we were the Batman bros. We were the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war. No. Mark.